This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Law School Show. I'm your host, Bianca, and today we're speaking with Camille Lapchuk. She is the executive director at Animal Justice and one of Canada's leading animal rights lawyers. She graduated with her Juris Doctor from the University of Toronto in 2012. She is also the co-host of the award-winning podcast, Paw and Order, Canada's only animal law podcast, where she and her co-hosts explore current court cases, legislation, and other legal issues affecting animals. So, hi, Camille. It's so nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bianca. Thanks so much for inviting me to join you today. I'm really excited to chat. Absolutely. I think you have a different profile than other lawyers being an animal rights lawyer. It's not something that you see every day, honestly, when you're in law school. So I'm so excited to uh, show this side of law to our fellow law students, uh, not only at University of Ottawa, where we're based, but also everywhere in Canada and worldwide even. Well, thanks. My my mission is to make this field more accessible to everyone and to promote it and, and make sure everyone understands how important these issues are. So it's uh, really great to get the chance to sit down with you and share that information with your listeners. Absolutely. Thanks. So just to get us started, uh, could you just explain a little bit what animal justice is and what you guys uh, do? Sure. So we're a national animal law advocacy organization. We try to improve the legal situation for animals in a variety of ways. Uh, The first way is we simply try to improve the laws that are on the books because a lot of people don't realize this, but Canada actually has some of the worst animal protection legislation in the Western world. Uh, We have no animal welfare laws governing farms, for instance, and no inspections. And that's true about most industries, frankly. It's, It's pretty abysmal. Um, So we try to make improvements there. We saw some huge successes last year. Parliament passed a groundbreaking ban on keeping whales and dolphins in captivity, for instance. Uh, We also try to make sure the laws that are on the books are actually enforced because a lot of the time this is an even bigger battle than simply having good laws is making sure the ones in place get used effectively. And enforcement agencies have a variety of problems ranging from lack of resources, lack of political will, pressure from industries not to enforce the law. So we try to pressure them to do their jobs. And uh, we also go to court to protect animals' interests. So we make sure that we can intervene or bring litigation that um, gives judges an idea about the issues that are at stake. So sometimes there's a case about animals and uh, we see that neither side is really arguing about animals. They're arguing about all these tangential issues. And the heart of the issue is the animals' interests and how the law should recognize those. So we try to intervene to make sure that those interests are respected. And finally, we, we try to do uh, as much as we can to promote the field through education. So that includes running animal law clubs at student campuses, including University of Ottawa, and also holding the annual Canadian Animal Law Conference, which happens every fall now. And um, this year drew over 400 people online, but hopefully again in person soon. Mm-hmm. It's all right. And you can still actually purchase the tickets, I believe, for the Animal Law Conference. So if anyone is interested in seeing that, it's super interesting. Uh, You still have access to the recordings from the Animal Law Conference. So definitely check that out if you're interested. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, what you said, it's so true. I think that, you know, in court, it's always people versus people, right? Or companies versus people, or, you know, the state versus people. It's, you don't usually find, you know, animals as a party, right? They're always kind of on the back burner. So it's so great to have people actually stand up, have lawyers stand up and represent their their interests. Yeah, yeah. And let me let me give you an example. Your listeners, if you're in law school, you might find this interesting. It was our first real intervention. We went to the Supreme Court, actually, which was pretty cool for the first time. And um, it was really exciting when we got leave to, to intervene. But the case was that it was a tragic case. It was about bestiality. Um, it was about a man who abused his stepdaughters and also involved the family dog in that abuse. <clears throat> and the issue on appeal was whether his actions, which were non-penetrative regarding the dog, constituted that offense because of the way it had been defined and the way it had evolved through the common law. And what we saw in that case is the Crown was making arguments about how the, the offense of bestiality is really about protecting children from abuse. And then, of course, the defense is saying, well, you know, don't don't convict this guy and you know, this doesn't matter and all this stuff. Um, so we felt like the animal's voice was just completely missing from that proceeding. There was no historical or background information presented by either party about the history of that offense and why the offense of bestiality can't be committed without abusing a vulnerable animal. So luckily, the court agreed and wanted us there to provide that perspective. <clears throat> and in the end, they uh, included in their judgment, which didn't go the way we wanted, although we got a great dissent from Justice Abella. Uh, but the judgment actually did say that... Uh, Canadians believe that protecting animals is a fundamental value. So that was first recognition for that principle and still a pretty cool thing. Absolutely. I remember that actually, uh, I think it's the first, one of the first cases we saw in our uh, criminal law class. So when I read the case, I was like, wait a second, I remember this from the podcast. (laughs) Wow, cool that it's actually being taught. Yeah, it, it was like one of the first ones. And I thought, oh my gosh, isn't it so cool that the first criminal law case is an animal-related case? I thought that was really cool. Um, and that I actually knew something coming into law school was great. <laughs> <laughs> it's a nice feeling. Yeah, for sure. So um, then I'd love to know how you came um, became a part of the animal justice team and also in just into the animal law field in general. When did you kind of know that you wanted to do this? I know you started a bit in criminal law. Could you just tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah, sure. Well, I I did go to law school for the sole purpose of becoming an animal rights lawyer. That was always my dream. Uh, I shouldn't say always. I I conceived of this dream, I guess, in about a couple of years before I started law school. I'd been working in Ottawa in federal politics at the time for the leader of the Green Party then, Elizabeth May. And um, she herself was a lawyer, and I saw how much her legal training helped her in the work that we were doing every day. She's She used to be an environmental lawyer. She considers herself an activist, um, tries to make social change. And I, I saw that that was useful to her. And around the same time, I was starting to feel really inspired to devote my career to helping animals. But I didn't really know that you could do that. It's not like there's a ton of physicians out there or models, frankly. There was only one animal rights lawyer, effectively, at the time. When I started thinking about this, but um, I ended up going out to the Canadian seal hunt for the first time with an organization to, to help them out. And we gathered footage and images of the West or to the East Coast commercial seal kill and uh, used those images to help shut down the trade between Canada and the European Union of seal skins, which took a huge chunk out of that uh, pretty brutal hunt. So 
I was around for the first time all these people who had these careers full time where they got up every morning and worked to help animals. And I just felt so inspired to, to join them. So I decided to combine the law thing with the animal thing and we got animal law. That's so great. Yeah. So I, I went to UC. I, I got in. I um, delayed a year because there was a federal election, which I wanted to see through first. But eventually I went off. And um, yeah, I mean, in, in law school, I was lucky enough to connect with a couple of great people who really cared about the same issues. Being in Toronto was great because you could volunteer for all the, the NGOs that are working on animal protection issues. And I didn't know where I was going to article when I was kind of nearing the end. Um, I had no idea what my career was going to look like because it's not like there were any jobs or even really um, animal justice wasn't even really around then in the same form. So I ended up articling in criminal law. I actually got my job at a veg fest. So I always tell students, never skip veg fest. You never know if you're going to get an articling job. I was speaking on a panel and um, my future boss came up afterwards and he said, I am a criminal lawyer. I'm vegan. Do you want an articling job? And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. <laughs> so I kind of fell into criminal law, but uh, I'd done a lot of it in law school too. So I, I loved that. And uh, we all knew that after a couple of years, I'd leave and do my own thing. So I set up my own shop for a bit, but when you're a new lawyer with your own practice, you're not always uh, 100% busy all the time. So it gave me lots of spare time to work on animal justice and help build us into a, a larger professional organization. And so that eventually happened and I transitioned away from my practice, which was animal law focused, helping clients, and away to just running uh, animal justice full time. And here we are. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, that sounds great. And it's true. I find a lot of lawyers in you know that are in animal law at least from what I know, uh, I saw a lot of them do another type of law and then do animal law kind of on the side. And I'm just so happy that, you know, for you, it flourished into something that's your every day. So you got the anim- the uh, position at Animal Justice through that through that person there or was it was it through someone else well I actually started with animal justice while I was still in law school as a volunteer so I um well not really as a volunteer so much as a summer student actually I I got a grant from U of T my my school to uh, join animal justice for the summer which was really great so I worked on all kinds of issues I wrote a, a legal memo about how Air Canada did have the authority to stop shipping monkeys bound for research and eventually they made that change so that was really cool I did all kinds of other things too, but that was sort of my first foray into doing that work full time. And I stayed on as an advisor after that and was always involved sort of as a volunteer. There were a group of us, um, you know, collectively that kind of tried to do what we could as volunteers when we could. So, um, you know, there was some progress being made for, for animals through animal justice, but once we started professionalizing and, and um, growing our revenue and resources, then we were able to do a lot more. Yeah. Speaking of, Weren't you just looking for a staff lawyer not long ago? Are you still looking? Well, we've been doing job interviews for a new hire. Very exciting. I know for everyone in law school right now who's who's looking at becoming um, an animal lawyer, you're all like, oh, three years too early. But there will be more opportunities. Don't worry. Okay, that sounds good. Everyone can be reassured that they're going to have a shot if they want to become an animal lawyer. But for now, so... You got to Animal Justice. Now you're the executive director. So you went from being a summer student to now being the executive director, which is quite remarkable. And now can you tell us a little bit how your really your day-to-day is? 
Sure. Well, it's changed a lot as we've grown. So early on, I was a volunteer executive director full time. And, um, I, you know, I've always tried to emphasize not just the legal work, but the administration of the organization, because somebody needs to do that. You can't grow a group if you don't focus on administration and fundraising and events and capacity building. So I actually spend most of my day working on those types of issues, whether it be events, whether it be fundraising, whether it be relationships with um, sponsors or supporters. And uh, most of our campaign work is now done by our staff lawyer who's on the team, Caitlin Mitchell, who's really, really great as well. She spent uh, about a decade in environmental law before she transitioned over to animal justice and does animal rights law full time now. Um, yeah, so my day today is very diverse. Uh, it could be anything from, you know, shooting an interview for a, a documentary to running to our storage locker and moving boxes around. And some of it's not very glamorous, but all of it is very fun. And, and we all know we're making a difference. So that helps you get up in the morning. Absolutely. And now today you're recording a podcast. So there you go. Changes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. So this is kind of a fun question. I think a lot of people are going to want to know this. During your career so far as an animal lawyer, your time at Animal Justice, what would you say that the biggest challenge has been for you? Oh, good question. I think the biggest challenge for me is wanting to do so much more than our resources allow. We have such big ideas and can look at the big picture and see what systemic change needs to happen in Canada to improve the situation for animals. Like, we don't have any national animal welfare legislation in this country, which is atrocious. Um, <clears throat> you know, we've got enforcement bodies who are still private charities enforcing public enacted laws like SPCAs and Humane Society. So shunting that public responsibility off onto a private charity. Uh, there's so much progress that can be made, but we're still a really small team of only three, soon to be four. And, uh, you know, when you look at the other side, and by the other side, I mean the industries who are usually those who we're fighting against. The dairy industry, for instance, and if you listen to our podcast, Bianca, you know this stat already because I trotted out, but it's so rare that we have any insight into what industries are able to spend. But because the Dairy Farmers of Canada testified uh, before the House of Commons a couple of years ago, they, they actually mentioned some budget statistics and they spend $80 million a year on marketing. That's just marketing. And that's just one industry group. And that, you know, our revenue is, is so far below that. And it, it's, it's more than 10 times the revenue of all animal protection groups combined. And that's just one industry. So we're, we've got this David and Goliath battle. And uh, yeah, so for me, the challenge has always been just wanting to do so much more and not having the resources to really fight these guys on even playing fields. That is so true. I remember when I heard that number, I thought, oh my goodness. And I'm a marketing major. So, you know, before going to law school, so I think I don't honestly I can't even really uh, imagine how much that amount of money can do. <laughs> I can only I can try to imagine, but I can't. <laughs> no, it's just it's a massive sum. Yeah, it's it must be so hard to fight, but you guys have a good team and you make a lot of really good points. By the way, Animal Justice has Facebook, right? Uh, so you guys need to go follow them on there. Uh, they write amazing stuff. They share really important news in animal law. So definitely check that out. Go follow them. Go like their page. So you touched a little bit on this, but I think we would all love to know what are the most pressing animal law issues right now in Canada? What are you dealing with? I know there's the there's a fur thing going on. If you could expand on that, the ag gag laws, all of that. I'm going to let you take it away with some of the issues right now. 
Where do you start? <laughs> a gay bar is a good place to start. So um, for those of you who are listening who haven't heard this term before, a gig is a term coined by Mark Bittman, a New York Times writer, referring to agricultural gay laws that swept the United States in the 2010s and have unfortunately now come to Canada. So these gay laws, these egg gay laws, essentially make it an offense to go undercover to expose animal cruelty in places like factory farms and slaughterhouse, even transport. And um, as I mentioned, they've been around in the States for a little while. The, the first egg gay laws in the States came in the 90s and then later in the 2010s in response to undercover investigations that revealed just horrific cruelty and suffering in farming. Um, obviously, the farming industry doesn't like to see those images on the 6 p.m. news because they damage their profits. And so instead of trying to address the cruelty that led to those images in the first place, the industry's response has been to push for laws to make sure that the images just can't make their way onto the news. So, you know, unfortunately, that um, has been a big battle in the States for quite some time. We thought that we'd escaped a gig laws in Canada until recently. But unfortunately, last year, the meat industry started pushing for them. And Alberta passed the first egg gig law in only 10 days with almost no debate or almost no public scrutiny. And Ontario followed suit pretty soon after. So, um, you know, Alberta's egg gig law, it makes it an offense to go on to private property uh, if you're not invited to be there. And it also makes it an offense to be on private property if you've got permission to be there. But if that permission was obtained under false pretenses. So that means if you are deceptive in any way to get onto private property, you could be at risk of a fine of up to $25,000 for an individual or $200,000 for an organization. So the way that this interacts with undercover investigations into farming, Bianca, is that um, a person who gets a job on a farm for the purpose of seeing whether there's any cruelty, obviously is not going to reveal that intention to the farm because the farm would never hire them. They would never be able to see what's going on. So it's, you know, unfortunate. Um, Alberta's law applies to all private property. So this is not just farms and slaughterhouses. This is also long-term care homes that might have COVID outbreaks. It's hospitals, it's daycares, it's jails. It's all these very vulnerable locations where people are, um, you know, housed without public oversight in a lot of cases. So that's unfortunate. Ontario followed suit. Ontario's law goes even further and makes it an offense to interfere with animals being transported. So makes it illegal to essentially um, interact with animals on a transport truck outside the slaughterhouse, which people have done and stuck cameras inside those trucks and found some pretty horrific stuff. So, I mean, that's one of the major focuses that we have right now is combating APA laws, including mounting probably a constitutional challenge very soon once Ontario's law comes into effect. Yeah, I mean, I just can't believe how... I, I don't know. I just can't believe that, you know, the legislation would focus so much on farms. Let's say just looking at, you know, the the farmers and uh, how they would just concentrate on the industries and not on the animals interests. I'm pretty sure a lot of people walk around every day and think that we are doing well or that we're in the top in the world for animal welfare. But really what's going on is that a lot of the legislation is trying to hide the pain, the suffering, the misery behind the industry. It's important for people to to know that, I think. So um, when you go on to uh, private property, technically that's trespassing. But then if you want to um, have an investigation and you want to be uh, you want to be hired uh, to work at one of these farms to be able to discover some, you know, malpractice, then 
you really can't. So what are the options that are left for the animals, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're right. Agave laws are kind of a double whammy because not only do they conceal further what's going on on farms, I mean, they just reinforce this existing um, status quo, which is that nobody can see what's happening behind the closed doors of a factory farm at the moment. We don't have any regulations for the welfare of farmed animals. And without any regulations to enforce, of course, there's no inspections by the government. So no one in practice ever goes on to farms to see what's happening from the government. And now they're making it illegal for the public to really have any means to get onto a farm. So, yeah, I mean, I think the response to it is is to challenge it in court. And ultimately, Bianca, I think it's interesting because in the States, there have been constitutional challenges as well to their egg gag laws. And Idaho, Iowa, Utah, um, Kansas, North Carolina, they've all struck down egg gag laws in court. And I know that by the end of that process, sometimes the industries are just reaching out to the government and saying, please make this stop. This is so bad for our image. And there's actually a lot of social science research about the fact that when people hear about the very existence of egg gag laws, their trust in farming goes down. They have less trust in farmers. They believe that the industry is trying to hide something. And quite reasonably so, because they are trying to hide something. So I actually think that um, not only is it bad for animals that they pass these make gate gate laws, it's not even in the farmer's best interest. They just don't realize it yet. Yeah, that is definitely true. And I hope that the fact that we're touching on this right now, people will look into this and just discover for themselves too what it is. Like you said, a lot of people are not aware, right? So it's super important. And then another kind of issue that I would love for you to expand on would be the uh, transportation of horses. It's something pretty big right now in the news. Um, I would love for you to just go over what the problem is with uh, the horse transportation right now in Canada. Sure. So there has been a lot of news attention paid to this recently, especially because uh, everyone's favorite singer-songwriter Jan Arden has actually been out to a couple of demonstrations opposing the the international shipment of horses. So essentially what happens is... um, Horse breeders breed a ton of horses. There are more horses in this country than um, are there are homes for at the moment. And that gives an opportunity for so-called kill buyers. So these are people who go and buy horses at auction and send them to slaughter. It gives them an opportunity to jump in there and make a quick dollar from killing um, horses and selling the meat. And sometimes this happens domestically. There is horse slaughter in Canada, but also horses are shipped internationally on airplanes to Japan. So they're flown out of Edmonton and Calgary in the Winnipeg airports. And uh, in Japan, horse meat is considered a delicacy. It's um, not as culturally inappropriate over there to eat horse meat as it mostly is here. A few people eat horse meat in Quebec, but largely um, most of the country is not um, interested in doing so and finds it troubling. Most people see horses as companion animals, and it's one of those complex social cultural issues about the animals that we love and the animals that we eat. Um, North Americans love cats and dogs, but we eat cows, pigs, fishes, chickens, and sometimes horses. At any rate, uh, the the horses were were being shipped, and they have been for years, and there's been a lot of attention paid to the suffering during transport because, uh, for starters, under a previous animal humane transport regime, which was recently replaced, and we'll get to that. Um, The CFIA, which is the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, they were actually allowing these horse shipments to go ahead without even meeting the statutory standards for the shipments. So the horses were crowded together in crates, 
Um, the crates weren't supposed to touch the horses, but their heads were touching the top. There were a variety of problems and um, probably illegal transport going on. So these, the CFIA is being challenged in court over this. But in the meantime, they rewrote the transport regulations basically to reflect what transporters were already doing. So they removed the requirement that horses be shipped separately and that they can't um, touch the top of crates. Isn't that nice? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just so typical. Whatever industry wants, industry gets, frankly. Uh, that's the state of, of laws in this country, and it's really sickening. It is. It's um, It's just crazy, the... The fact that they're allowed to do that, to just change the regulations, I didn't even know that. I really hope that this challenge against the CFI really, really wins because I've seen the pictures of the horses all crammed together. I have a horse who's retired, so so she's just living life basically on permanent vacation. I know it's a big problem in Australia, especially, that um, people will kind of disguise themselves as this potential you know, buyer that will end up using the horse to to ride them, you know, to go to competitions or stuff like that, you know, and then they end up just going to the slaughterhouse with them. And it's a real concern. So awful. Um, so specifically about these issues, what is animal justice uh, doing? Are you guys actively representing the interests of the animals, the, the fight against ag-ag laws and, uh, you know, the horse transportation, the CFIA challenge? What are you guys doing about that? Well, we're not actively working on the horse issue because another great organization called the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition is really leading the charge on that. They filed the uh, legal challenge, which they've been arguing in court, and now they're appealing because they lost at the lower level. So they're great, and anyone interested in this, definitely check them out, and we'll always support them and other groups doing good work. But when it comes to egg-egg laws, that's been a major focus of animal justice for the last year, and I expect it will be for quite some time. Um, we we have actively opposed egg gag laws where they sprung up. So we have them passed now in Alberta and Ontario, and, but they're also being considered in Manitoba and Quebec, and the industry is pushing for egg gag in BC as well, and potentially other provinces that we don't know about yet. So we're very alive that this threat is spreading across the country. And uh, we testified in Ontario. We mounted a pretty extensive campaign to... Um, mobilize Ontarians and Canadians to write into the government and express their opposition to this. Uh, we told them that it's unconstitutional because it violates the Section 2B freedom of expression protections under the Charter, which is exactly the same way that it was struck down in the States and, and now five different jurisdictions. And we're at this point preparing to file a legal challenge to the Ontario egg gag law when it comes into effect. So they're still drafting regulations to accompany it. And the regulations are going to delineate the scope of just how unconstitutional this legislation is. So once those are out and the full laws in, set, in effect, uh, the government will see us in court. Yes, absolutely. That could absolutely be challenged. And uh, I hope that it goes well. I don't see any way that, it, that the animals can't win this battle because, like you said, it's, it's, it's bound to be struck in the Supreme Court. But yes, absolutely. If you disagree with the ag-ag laws and you're in any of those provinces that uh, that Camille mentioned, you need to write to your MP. Yes, you got it. <laughs> you need to let them know. <laughs> so what is a common myth about animal rights in Canada and can you debunk it? It's an interesting one. Common myth, okay. Well, I, I think the most common myth, Bianca, is just that People truly believe in Canada that because we ourselves feel like kind and compassionate people, we believe that our governments must reflect those attitudes in policies and laws. 
And more often than not, that is absolutely not the case. Uh, I think the government and the industry rely on secrecy and barriers to information. So because animals are so often kept behind closed doors on private property and they're considered the property of other people, they don't have any inherent rights of their own really at this point. Um, it's very, very difficult for the public to effectively oversee that. So that, that means that people are just operating with a disparity of information. And what you don't, what you can't see, you can't really know about. So the government and the industry, they rely on that secrecy to sort of dupe people into thinking that the situation is probably fine. And again, as trusting Canadians, we, we feel like the government should have our best interests at heart and probably the interests of animals as well. So, I mean, I think that's the myth. I think the way to debunk it is by showing people the truth. And there's pretty incredible uh, folks out there working, especially doing documentaries and photography, trying to expose the truth to the world. And uh, if anyone wants to learn more about what happens behind closed doors, I, I would really urge everyone to check out We Animals Media. They're a great agency. They uh, go into situations where animals are being used, both domestically in Canada, but also around the world. And they try to tell the story of that human-animal relationship, but more from the perspective of the animals. So they might be in places like the exotic pet trade. They might be at um, you know, a monkey breeding facility in Asia where they're breeding animals to be used in labs. They might be at a marine park or a zoo. They could be inside a factory farm at a nighttime visit or a fur farm. They really run the gamut. So uh, you know, I, I think it's important for people to know the truth. And unfortunately, that requires a fair amount of self-directed um, education at this point. It's true. Yeah. So we animals media. Yeah. Great organization. They're run by photojournalist, Canadian photojournalist, Joanne MacArthur. And uh, she just does incredible work and has been inside places that nobody should ever have to go and seen things that should never happen to anybody. So definitely check it out. Uh, like Camille said, if you are interested, you know, in just learning more, I think it's something um, also your podcast. I find that it's not just like telling you, you need to go vegan or you know, you need to do this and that. It's very open, uh, very open-minded. So you can just go, if you want to just know more, that's it. You just want to learn more. You just want to know what's going on. You need to go and just, I invite you to go listen to uh, to the podcast. Just pick out an episode. I promise they're all amazing. So yeah. And then just a nice little question to end it off. What advice would you give to someone, a law student that wants to enter the animal rights field now? Great question. Well, and thanks for your kind words about the podcast. But uh, to answer your question, uh, the thing that helped me the most, and I can only speak from my personal experience, is that I guess I networked a lot. And I don't really like that term networking. It sort of feels artificial to me, like you're just going out to meet people for an instrumental purpose. But I got really involved in a lot of different groups while I was in law school. Um, I did more than just animal work. I was involved in some criminal law stuff too, the environmental society. But what really helped me in my career was having connections and relationships with people at other animal protection organizations and also on the ground activists who are doing street level work. So, you know, protests, um, doing vigils outside of slaughterhouses, things like that. Uh, those people became my clients when I set up my own animal law practice. And that was how I really got my foot in the door in this field. So once I, once I set my practice up, um, I already had dozens of, of people who were willing to hire me to do work because I knew them already. And I had a reasonably good reputation from having volunteered with them or done other work. So 
I think more than just networking, actually getting involved in the issues uh, is so important. And you don't have to wait until you're done law school to do it. You could join the board of a rescue organization or a sanctuary. Um, you can attend protests and demos. You can meet with your member of parliament. You can join an animal protection organization and help them out with their campaigns. There's just so many ways to, to get into it. Um, the field is still small enough that it really helps to know who the major players are. And it's small enough that it's not that difficult to meet me, for instance, or colleagues at Animal Justice or people at other groups who are so accessible and, and love to welcome people into the field. So I would just say meet as many people as you can in this area. I think that is wonderful advice for all our listeners. Camille, thank you so much once again for coming on the Law School Show. We are so happy to have you. Thank you, Bianca, for having me and good luck to all of you students out there. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.